but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> so, uh, unless, okay. Oh, yeah, I remember now. <laughs> well, I don't know. Have we started? I don't know. <clears throat> we may have started. The reason I'm laughing is that I have no idea what to talk about. I, you know, it's like usually at this point we talk about some goofball little story that's on the list, but there isn't exactly a goofball story on the list. What's what? Can we, what should we talk about? Who, who wants to talk about something? Pick something. What are we going to talk about? Um, I thought about let's, talk- let's talk about how distracted I am right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we're all distracted this morning, but uh, we'll figure that out. Uh, they uh, in-flight refueling of drones. Oh, oh, <laughs> how to get a charge on the fly yeah i know really so they're basically going to make you know I mean, wireless chargers are not that you know i mean everybody's got them now for their phones and everybody but lots of people for their phones and their you know uh you know wireless headphones and whatnot um so i don't know if the technology is in and of itself all that dramatic but they're going to kind of scale i saw a picture that showed this like square of telephone poles with wires strung from the tops of the squares to make this this kind of array thing and uh, and a and a drone hovering in the middle of it all and and my basic reaction was well what could possibly go wrong with that uh you know i don't know well you know it's going to be interesting um i guess we're going to turn in turn certain telephone poles into uh Drone refueling stations yeah. or something like that. My only real question is, um, what, uh, you know, how's the ammunition production going in this country? Yeah, can, can we, can we buy, you now, know, now. Uh, um, double hot buckshot or slugs for our shotguns? Now, to, now, to, now, now. It's against the law to shoot at drones. All right. Okay. <laughs> it's only against the law to shoot at drones if you get caught. No, 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 no. Don't say that. <clears throat> Come on. There's people listening. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, but this whole, you know, I mean, I don't know why they need to refuel in-flight refuel a drone. Well, right? there's a good question. Uh, because there, it's not like drones are going to go long distance necessarily. They're going to be little short hops around town. And they're going to return to their little base, you know, their little hive on a pretty regular basis and uh, and get charged there. Um, mark my words, the original, the original, the initial iteration of all of these, uh, 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 you know, uh, delivery drone things is not even going to be from a central, you know, like little drone port, all right? It's going to be Amazon trucks that drive into a neighborhood, all right? And and then the top is going to open up sort of like the space shuttle, all right? And uh, and the top's going to open up and a whole swarm of drones carrying brown cardboard boxes with arrows on the side are going to like lift up out of this truck and go shooting off in various directions and dropping them on people's front porches, you know, or in Jeb's case, front lawns. And oh, man, that, that's that's ripe for a science fiction plot. Where the I know. Could, they're delivering packages to our house, and they blow up. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. But this, and, this outfit, yeah. they're pitching this whole system to the uh, electric generation industry, uh, the folks that have got to inspect these big, long runs of high-power uh, uh, transmission lines. Okay. So they they could pop these things up portably, uh, I'm sure, 
because the ones that they got in the picture here look like they're portable. Yeah. But move it down the road on your inspection process. Drone flies. It comes to the little box. It recharges. Heads on down the line. The crew picks that charging area up and moves it past the next stop. Well, yeah, okay. That's not a that's not an unreasonable scenario, actually, if you ask me. And and in that scenario, you know, you would put them in permanently. I mean, if you're going to routinely inspect a long length of you know power line, you know, right of way, then every you know whatever it is, ten miles or five miles or two miles or whatever the right number is, you have one of these little stations set up, and it might not even be on the ground. It might be up on the top of one of the uh, towers or something like that. You know, and uh, although you know. I mean, like, there's all kinds of current passing through those wires already. Crazy lots of current passing through those power lines. And so couldn't the drone just kind of, like, hover near those wires? Isn't that the same thing? Maybe maybe the drone has to, like, you know, circle around. I, I, I think the... it has to be inside that circle, in, inside that ring. Yeah. Uh, or they could just, it could land on the wires. It could actually touch the, the, the wires and get its current directly that way. Once. <laughs> but I, I think the point is to not have to land. Uh, uh, well, I don't know. Is the point not to land or not have to go home? Um, well, if you go home, what are you going to ho- go home for? You're going to land and then you're going to start the whole bloody thing over again. Right. I mean, that's my point. So they, they can just easily land if, if, if there's a place to land out in the field. But it's um, got, as I say, if you don't want it going back to where it started, that's just backtracking. That's right. Then, then the next battery has got to take you past that point to the next area that hadn't been inspected yet. Uh, this you move it down the road. It, I don't know. It seems logical to me. It's like tankers circling in a moa, waiting for the airplanes to come and tank up, and then they go on, and another tanker's down the road waiting for them for the next big hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, except this would be moving that little wire ring, the the get air ring. I love that the get air ring. Uh, Is that what it, it's called? Yeah, and it can charge them after a 28 minute flight it says it can charge them in about six minutes that'd be pretty bloody efficient for going down the road but only 28 minutes well how far can you go in 28 minutes at 60 knots well but can you inspect at that speed okay all right all right 28 nautical miles is the is the answer yeah okay yeah right but uh yeah, Jeb, speaking of, you know, being able to land on the wires once, all right, you know, I mean, all kidding aside, you've seen the videos of these uh, helicopter-carried technicians who actually go down and touch, I mean, crazy, I mean, right. you know, it's, I mean, it's basic electricity, and I understand it on some level, I understand that you've got a, this this exposed metal cable that's carrying, you know, lots of volts and lots of amps, and as long as you don't ground yourself, you can touch it, all right? Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, you know, there's just a whole lot of things at play in these, you've seen these videos of where a a technician will be sitting with his legs hanging out or, or down on the skids of a helicopter and the helicopter will go in and hover in close to the wire and, uh, and the, uh, the technician is able to actually reach out and do whatever it is he needs to do to the wire, repair it or inspect it, or I don't know what, um, and, uh. You know, I guess this is true of all these line people these days is they, you know, they can go up there and touch these wires as long as they're not grounded. And a lot of these lift trucks, I guess, are all insulated so that so I I guess it's a long way by saying 
the drone could land on the wire. Birds land on these wires all the time. They don't get fried often. Um, and, uh, you know, so why couldn't the drone hang itself from this high tension wire? I don't know. This is sounding more and more like a bat cave, um, thing. <laughs> um, uh, without the bat, you know, say without, that without, like, without the Batman, you, you know. say that like it's a bad thing. Well, I'm just, I, I just wonder if maybe we haven't overlooked a whole bunch of other options here. Oh, um, oh, but um, far be it from me to. Okay. Um, All right. But, you know what can I say? Yeah. Um, um, if we're if we're genuinely concerned about how to recharge drones. Um, and, and that kind of thing, um, uh, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, um, the, the, we've definitely gone over center on a few things though. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. David, are we done with this? I think so. Yeah. Welcome folks to uncontrolled airspace, the general aviation podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson coming to you from uh, alongside the banks of the beautiful Cochico River in uh, Dover, New Hampshire. This is uh, a this is a no segue zone today. Yeah, you think so? I don't know. We'll see. Uh, talking to my two good friends here in our virtual hangar. Uh, that voice right there is uh, from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, Jeb Burnside. Hi, Jeb. How are you doing? I'm okay. Um, still kind of, I don't know, frazzled, I guess. I've I've had like a three-week work sprint here over the last three weeks. Oh, and, okay. Uh, um, just finally at the point where um, uh, I don't have to sit at my desk all day. Um, and cranking out words for various people and whatnot. So, yeah. uh, it's, um, it's interesting and I'm not, um, what uh, relaxing, not having, not e- being driven. Exactly. It's, 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 so I'm kind of still wandering around trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. So, uh, bear with me for the, for a few minutes. Okay. That's, that's why you're distracted. That's yeah, why we mentioned that yeah. earlier. Yeah, I know. I know it's weird. I've had this, uh, you know, there've been times when I too have been working intensely on a particular project, particularly one that has a hard deadline right. that just like, you, just, there's no way it's going to be done by, you know, I mean, right. that's it. All right. And so you're, you're working hard and working hard and focusing on all your whole being is about doing whatever it is you need to do by the deadline. And then suddenly the deadline passes and You've done whatever it is you use, is going to happen, and suddenly you don't have anything to do. Right. It's like now what? Now like, what? I, I wait a minute. I've had my life has been well well shaped by external forces for and now. So one so. one thing, of course, is I can send invoices to cover all of the work. Ooh, yeah, 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 there so. you go. But that's more work sitting at the desk. Yeah, I know. See, so I see. it's you know, I'm like, what? That's my big downfall is sending the invoices. Just send me the money. Yeah, I know. Really, I sent you the work. You know yeah. what we're gonna. You know yeah. what you're gonna pay me. It's not yeah. like there's any mystery here. Yeah, I know. I know. Anyways, well, right. there's a certain amount of mental inertia in play there. It's, you get conditioned to that level of intensity and busyness, and when yeah. it's, when it just stops suddenly, it's like whiskey tango foxtrot. Uh, yeah, I should be doing something. I should I sh- be someplace. I should I- be filing something. <laughs> That's the way it used to feel. On the last day of Oshkosh, after we'd spent ten days doing the newspapers, like, why, why am I standing still? Why, oh, yeah. why, why yeah. ain't I laying out something or yes. copy editing something? That's a good example. That's a good example. When you, when I filed my last column of the week, it's kind of like, well, now what? 
that was before I had the podcast to do as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to worry about running out of things to do now. Um, but, uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, you know, I had a segue and now I've lost it. Maybe you're right, Jeb. This is going to be the non-segue episode. Segway did he go, George? Yeah, really. Because <laughs> that other voice here in our virtual hangar is uh, uh, from from Wet and Wild, apparently, uh, Wichita, Kansas. Uh, that's Dave Higdon. Good morning, David. How are you doing? I- I'm doing good. Uh, I'm not afloat. Uh, I'm not on the Kansas Turnpike. And I saw the story, Jack. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's close from uh, Wellington, Kansas, uh, down to past the Oklahoma line. For those of you that, that doesn't mean anything, we're talking about I-35. And my house in the last two and a half weeks has had something like 11 inches of rain. And, really? Uh, yeah. Wow. It's just spread out over storm, big storm systems about every other day or every third day going back two and a half weeks now. And uh, yesterday was no exception. Uh, and the day before, we got three inches here yesterday we got an inch and a half uh and i'm looking at my overgrown lawn hoping that the lawn company i've got an arrangement to come and clean my leaves and cut my yard will remember that this is the day that we agreed on the third time i postponed it oh yeah okay okay yeah listeners should know maybe i guess let's see if i can do this vaguely um that that the neighborhood dave lives in is surrounded almost three-quarter encircled by um the uh, what the Little Arkansas River, right? Little Arkansas, yeah, yeah, uh, and, and uh, uh, I, I, it's always been, you know, and, and it's it's so encircled. It's always been a concern of mine that that river be well behaved, and uh, and you smart Kansans um, have taken some steps that. Uh, so there's a whole what's it called the spillway, the overflow, the oh uh, the the uh, Wichita the, Arkansas Valley flood control project yeah. uh and the locals had shortened it to the big ditch the big ditch and which the big was ditch. O- overseen by my late neighbor mitch mitchell mm-hmm. who earned the nickname big ditch mitch yeah. uh over the years but this was a project in the uh, latter half of the 1950s mm. and the and the and the ditch as it is is 27 miles long and it takes water out of the Big Arkansas and the Little Arkansas, which would be the Arkansas River in the other 49 states, uh, <laughs> siphons it off into this ditch and runs it around the west side of Wichita, uh, down past a couple of other big towns, and then dumps it back into the big river and spares the downtown area and my neighborhood from being flooded multiple times a year when we have systems like this. So we always kind of close our eyes and say, Quiet thank you to my late neighbor, Big Ditch Mitch. <laughs> Big Ditch Mitch. God bless him. May he rest in peace. Uh, he probably died early just because of his nickname. Uh, oh, you think? Maybe. Because he wanted know. to. I don't know. Yeah. So um, one last weather item here before we move on. Uh, Jeb, I, I, I blame this all on you. All yeah. right. I have, we now have, there's, there are listeners now in the your central Florida area or whatever it is you call that area, Sarasota County-ish area. There are listeners down there now who are tormenting me about temperature and 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 florida weather as well they should yeah why why do you find (laughs) why do you find this a problem i tweeted this morning about the fact that it actually got down to 34 degrees here this morning i mean it's like yikes i mean oh oh, 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 you mean fahrenheit yeah even new hampshire that's strange dude because it's it's in the lower 40s here this morning i you know it's you know 
Anyways, so like, uh, yeah, uh, so I tweeted about the how, how cold it was this morning, um, and one of our listeners who's in Sarasota, uh, you know who you are, uh, <laughs> came, came back and was tormenting me about the temperature and and just kind of basically alluding to the fact that Florida is better than New Hampshire, um, but uh, yeah, so I blame it all on you, Jim. Okay, I, okay. I accept that. What, right. what what do you blame the Red Sox on? Hey, the Red Sox are doing great. What the heck are you talking about? So, you know, for some reason, Jeb, you're getting like tweets or you're getting notifications about very, very limited, uh, 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 you know, selection of Red Sox news. Um, the Red Sox right now have won eight out of their last 10 games, I'll have you know. All right. The Red Sox definitely had a rough start. There's no question about it. it had a rough start. The okay. Red Sox are playing good baseball right now. And uh, um, they won an extra inning get- game last night. With a, as a result of a miraculous catch in the outfield. All right, that's enough weather and baseball talk. Um, Red Sox doing just fine. Don't be dissing my Red Sox, Burnside. Just, uh, I'm just asking. You yeah. Know, uh, just asking. Okay. Uh, they're, they're, aviation. They're, they're, they got a 500 record so far this season. They do, but just, all right, you know, all laugh right. while you can. I, I'm not laughing. I'm, I'm just... You know, this is this is my scratching the head episode. I started out scratching my head, saying, "What am I going to do next?" And now I'm scratching my head over the Red Sox. I'll probably start scratching my head over something Dave says in a minute. You know, scratch your head over a baseball subject. The Tampa Bay Rays are doing really well this year, which is kind of unusual in and of itself. It's true; they're ahead of the AL East right now. Yeah, they are. They are. All right, aviation. Here we go. Oh, uh, yep, 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 yep. So there's okay. one follow up on the list. I'm not sure how much. Is there anything to follow up to the 737 Max thing? Is this a story that keeps on giving? Um, and uh, you know, I, I you know, I'm, we're going to live to regret this because it's recorded and out there that back at the very beginning of this whole mess, all right, we said Boeing will be just fine. You know, I mean, this is a bad thing, but Boeing will come through it no problem. And I guess they probably will. But man, it's just getting darker and darker or as dave put it deeper and darker um and uh david why did you put this on the list i so just like you know um you tell me well here where are we six seven weeks into this story and uh new things just keep popping up uh the, the the latest one this week Boeing knew that an AOA, angle of attack, disagree alert on the 737 MAX, didn't work unless you bought an upgraded indicator for the cockpit. And not everybody knew that. Yeah. People that bought the airplanes without the upgraded indicator thought that that AOA disagree alert was going to work because the light was there, but without the proper indicator in the panel next to it, the light doesn't come on. And they didn't tell anybody about this. Yeah. Matter of fact, I'm not even sure when they discovered it because it feels like that this was something that uh, just kind of floated up out of the ooze of the last few weeks well, of this well, story. Let me let me make sure I understand what you just said. Um, <clears throat> Boeing installed an AOA disagree warning light on seven three maxes. But they never connected it? Apparently. It wasn't connected on airplanes that didn't have the upgraded indicator. And what that indicator is, I've never seen. I don't know whether it's an attitude indicator or something else. But 
the upgraded indicator, which not everybody bought. It was just the the AOA alert is a standard feature on all Max aircraft, but it doesn't work on a majority of the airplanes. The story says because the company determined that the alert was not necessary for safe operation, so it didn't inform operators or the FAA that it was incorrectly set as a link to an optional feature that only about one in five Max Air buyers, Max 8 buyers exercise. Yeah. So about 80% of the operators, including both of the airplanes that crashed, the, the uh, Air Flight 6, what was it, 610 and Ethiopian 302, were without that alert. Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah. that alert was kind of part and parcel to the MCAST operation. Uh, you get a, a disagree, and it's not supposed to exercise the MCAST. I know, I know. And Jeff, it does spot, anyway. I, yeah. I, I just think Boeing ought to go back and, and start producing the 757 again. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, that would solve so many of their problems. I saw a picture on the net the other day of Southwest's um, 737 Maxes. Um, apparently, they've collected them all together on one ramp someplace. I forget where it says. Yeah, but, it's uh, like Mojave or something. Um, and uh, and it's just a it's just a a, a, a big ass swarm of 737s uh, just all sitting there, parked side by side, nose to tails. You know, was, I mean, was, was that the picture of all of the, they? They were all Southwest airplanes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, anyways. Oh, um, quick uh, quick update. Yeah. The upgraded indicator was a higher-end angle of attack readout. So unless you bought the higher-end AOA indicator, you didn't get that disagree alert. Right. Duh. But was this a was this a, a a a thing that appeared on the on the multifunction display on a screen or was there actually a, a light a lens on the panel that theoretically was going to light up. There's a light on the panel, and then the AOA indicator that goes with it uh, won't show a reading because the, the two veins disagree. Oh, this is nuts. I guess maybe I don't understand it well enough. I just, it just, I, I keep wondering whether or not is this to the extent there was misbehavior here. If it turns out there was misbehavior here. Is it is it at the corporate level, or is there was there like a project manager who just kind of kept this stuff to himself or herself? Um, I mean, wow, wow! Yeah, well, yeah, so much of this stuff goes through review by committees. I, know. I mean, you know, when the uh, when Boeing is ready to submit paperwork to get a type certificate on an airplane, it sits down with a panel of FAA people, and they go over all this paperwork to make sure everything has been resolved and tested and. Somewhere in there, that just didn't rise. The The conclusion was that the premium indicator wasn't necessary for safety, so a lot of people didn't buy it, not knowing that without it, they wouldn't get that angle of attack disagree light to come on. Yeah. Well, That's just bonkers. Yeah, one of the – one question I have in, in, in just listening to uh, you all talking about this – what, how are previous versions of the 7.3 configured in this regard? Do they have AOA disagree lights? Do they mm-hmm. have AOA disagree indicators, warnings, whatever? 
And I don't know the answer to that. Nor, no, no, I don't. I haven't seen and, anything about and, that. And so. um, that that would seem to be one question. So I, I mean, obviously there would be some some certification history if um, those aircraft were similarly configured. Right. Um, the whole this whole thing goes back to, of course, Boeing wanting to make this a common uh, a type certificate. I'm sorry, right. common type rating. Yeah. Um, and um, here we are. Um, it's interesting to me. Uh, well, well, there's a lot of interesting things about this, but one of the most interesting things is trying to watch, listen, or read um, non-aviation journalists um, describe the effect of repositioning the engines on the wing. And, oh, really? And, and, yeah, yeah. It's and, and the the thrust uh, vectors that ensue and, and all that kind of thing. It's just it's almost hilarious. Um, but, In what way are they getting it wrong? Um, or they just don't understand. They, they just, don't understand what the, what um, what the facts are there. They they don't understand. Um, um, uh, the yeah. relationship of, of, of thrust lines to center of gravity to angle of attack to uh, so many other things. And uh, it's just very basic sometimes. Yeah. you got to be careful about how you position those engines. Otherwise, you might cause the engine to stall. And uh, sorry. Well, um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, you know, you can, in fact, get at very high angles of attack, um, you, um, slow airspeeds, whatever. You certainly could get... Um, um, I forget what the specific term is called with a turbine engine like this, but Where the, uh, um, the turbine blades stall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I forget what the what the term is for that. Um, You're talking I, about a compressor stall. Thank Compre- you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, that's the word. Right? Yeah, compressor stall. Yeah. yeah, because there's not enough flow, or the flow is disrupted, or turbulent, uh-huh. or or something. Yeah. Okay. So, anyways, all right. Well, all right. There we go. We've spent ten minutes. You know. Basically saying but we don't know any, we don't know and, anything else than we did yeah, last right. time. We are are you saying we maxed out on this? Ooh, okay, all right. Oh so. man. <laughs> uh, moving on. Somebody's phone is ringing. Um, it stopped. Uh, so on Instagram, um, someone who is prob- I don't know if he's a listener, but uh, JPS. Let's call him JPS on Instagram. Um, posted a picture about uh, the P-51, uh, talking about the, how the P-51 was the was it, it historically, apparently, correct, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, um, is considered to have been the first airplane designed with a laminar flow wing, all right? But he observes, uh, this JPS guy observes that the laminar flow was never actually demonstrated on the P-51, um, and... I don't know. Does anybody want to end? I have a kind of un, semi-related question. Any comment about that statement? Uh, it's not unusual. Uh, a lot of uh, airfoil designs were uh, created to use laminar flow, but achieving and holding laminar flow is a lot more difficult out in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a Comanche that I used to fly, it, it has a laminar flow wing. But it's nowhere close to demonstrating it most of the time, right? And what what's good about laminar flow? Without laminar flow, you get these little swirls of air over the top, and it right. create create drag. So you try to so, keep the air going over in smooth layers without separating. 
Now, now maybe that was my answer right there. Let me back up a step here and say, because I've heard this phrase laminar airflow for years, and I get that it's supposed to be a good thing, all right, and it's that it's a particular uh, uh, attribute of a wing design of the of the shape of a wing. But what exactly is laminar airflow um, in in terms of a wing design? One of and David, you just sort of you may have just said it right there, but how would you describe laminar airflow? Uh, air that flows over the wing smoothly, it stays attached, and as the air gets farther away from the wing, it stays in layers that hold together. But With isn't it, that the description of air flowing over any wing? What is it? How is it when it's not laminar airflow? Oh well, you get laminar flow over usually the first twenty-five percent. The, uh, the leading edge and a little bit behind the leading edge, and then it starts to separate to various degrees as it goes farther back on the wing. Okay, so when they say laminar airflow, what they're really talking about is 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 uh, is continuous laminar airflow or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And Jeb, does man, that... there was so much work done on this in the eighties. I mean, they they uh, NASA flew a test airplane that had millions of holes, laser-drilled holes in the upper surface of the wing and a suction system underneath to try to pull the air down and keep it smooth to maintain to, to laminar it, flow. To make it laminar, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. not, it was not, it was not uh, adapted. Uh, airfoil design, I think, did a better job as they got more and more computer-generating models to help them refine these yeah. So, one one of the since we got talking to one of the websites I'm I'm looking at while we're talking about this um, talks about the boundary layer mm-hmm. and the boundary layer of course is that uh, air that is between the surface of the wing and the air that flows over the wing creating mm-hmm. creating lift right and the idea the the boundary layer doesn't move a whole lot. Um, in relation to the wind flowing, the air flowing over the wing, it doesn't move a whole lot relative to the wing itself. There's a little bit of, you know, might call it a vacuum, uh, which creates drag. Um, getting that flow to be laminar as close as possible, if not at the wing surface, is what laminar flow wings are all about and mm-hmm. minimizing all that drag. The the problem is, as, as I think Dave alluded, is uh, it's very, very, very hard to do that continuously, consistently, um, without some some tricks. Um, Beach, when they were designing and engineering the original Bonanzas, um, initially had a laminar flow wing designed for it. And for whatever reasons they discovered, or what, what I should say, whatever for whatever reasons they decided not to put a laminar flow wing on the Bonanza. Um, this was all, you know, post World War II, or at least the end of World War II, when you know they had all this data on P fifty ones. They had all this data on on um, um, laminar flow, or or trying to to minimize um, that boundary layer drag. So. Um, perhaps the speeds at which the Bonanza was operating, perhaps the, the nominal angle of attack it would be flying at in cruise didn't didn't support the extra uh, expense or, or uh, engineering of a laminar flow. I don't know what the answer is there. A lot of some of our listeners may have uh, a better insight on on, the, mm-hmm. on that. Um, I'm not convinced right now that any 
laminar flow wing really exists in the sense of that it's, that it's pure laminar flow. Yeah. Okay. And that link I just sent you oh, okay. is, is an illustration of laminar flow over the P-51 wing. Over the P-51 wing. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. So yeah. this this definitely echoes what you said a moment ago, is that uh, is that most any wing will have laminar flow initially, but where it falls apart is is the is the uh, you know sixty four thousand dollar question. That's a bad metaphor. But yeah. One of the other things going on with that diagram is the laminar flow wing is more symmetrical. Um, oh, okay. I see that now. Yeah, I than, noticed that. Than the uh, the traditional quote unquote wing and wings, you know, traditional is probably your, is about, probably about the best word could be used there because wings come in all shapes and sizes and and uh, uh, airfoils, etc. Um, in this diagram, one of the key things here is delaying um, the turbulent uh, flow to. Uh, as late as possible in this case, uh, further uh, down the cord, further uh, uh, along the cord of the wing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sorry, I was doing a little quick web search here. Um, I'm curious, that's interesting that the shape of the wing would, ma- the shape of the airfoil would matter, is particularly the, because you got to wonder why does the shape of the bottom of the wing affect the laminar-ness of the top of the wing. I suppose it because it changes the way there's there's um, turbulence at the trailing edge, probably. Uh, and uh, Very interesting. I'm sure there's listeners out there who know this way better than we do. I'm just kind of curious about all this because you've heard this, this phrase for, for years. And uh, I, when I think of, for some reason, when I think of laminar flow airfoils, um, I think of a guy whose name I'm blanking on right now. So back in the heyday of the Burt Rutan sessions at Oshkosh, um, he used to have a hugely popular session um, every year at Oshkosh called the Tent the, the tent Show or something like that, where basically Burt Rutan would get up on stage and just answer questions and just kind of like, you know, free associate and talk about whatever he wanted to talk about, all right? And it was always, they'd put it in the biggest forum building and it would overflow. And he had a buddy. Um, who would join him, um, who was a, a, a designer, an airfoil designer, probably among other things, um, who was somewhat, I want to say John. Does this name ring anything? You know, John, John Ronce, maybe? Does that name ring a bell to either of you? I guess not. Well, huh? the, the last name does, so that I, but I don't remember whether that was the first name that goes yeah. into Yeah, I, I, I don't remember. remember those sessions, so. Oh, they were great sessions if you could get in. Uh, they were fascinating. That's a lot of my my favorite our Bert Rutanisms I heard first there. Uh, he he used to he told the story about how how when they were designing the shuttle landing runway at uh, at Cape Canaveral. Right, uh, I remember this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He yeah. he used to say split he used to the, say that, that NASA did a big study of the wind. They discovered that half the time the wind came from the east and half the time the wind came from the west, and as a result, they averaged it out and made the runway go north south. Right, and, right, uh, um, right. He had a really strange love-hate relationship with uh, NASA. Um, Bert Rutan did. Probably still does. Um, although we don't see Bert as much these days. All right. Laminar flow. Thank you for educating me a little bit. That's kind of interesting. And uh, I, I think I know a little more about it now than I did. So, uh, cool. Yeah. What's well, next? sometimes you just have to go with the flow. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. See, that's what this episode is going to be, Jeb. This is not about this, segues. Yeah. This is about, about bad puns. Bad puns. Bad puns. Bad puns. Bad puns. Uh, speaking of bad puns, uh, David <laughs> seems to be all excited about the fact that the FAA is uh, is uh, uh, having a change of heart on the subject of the possible and or impossible turn. Uh, David, why is this exciting? Well, partly because it fits in with the way I've always looked at this situation. You're on takeoff, you're climbing out, you've got a steep uh, angle of attack, and the engine quits. Yeah. And the conventional advice for years has been straight ahead and pick out a place to land. And I'll tell you, in some places I'd look at that and say, no way in hell. It's either going to be water or big trees or maybe a building. And my thought was always, use your judgment. If you got the altitude and the airspeed, make the turn. It doesn't matter if you're landing downwind if you walk away from it. Uh, as opposed to, well, sure, there's an ocean out there, but you should just go straight ahead and land in it anyway. What? Yeah. So uh, this is coming up in a uh, FAA uh, webinar. Uh National Association of Flight Instructors, a possible turn, engine failure after takeoff in a single-engine airplane. And the brief description, until recently, conventional training and wisdom dictated pilots should always land straight ahead when confronted by an engine failure that occurs shortly after takeoff. This, this controversial topic has been hotly debated since the early days of aviation to the point where turning around to land on the departure airplane has been called, quote, the impossible turn, close quote. It can be argued convincingly, however, that there are instances when it would be safer to return to the airport than to land straight ahead following such an engine failure. Yay! I've only been following this for 40 years, and finally somebody says, you know, on second thought, maybe that's not landing straight ahead is not always the best idea. Jane, uh, you ignorant slut. Well, you know, it's, sailplane pilots learn to do these low-level turns Uh in the event that the tow line breaks while they're climbing out. Now, admittedly, sailplanes have glide ratios to die for and sink rates that can be measured in single digits per minute. But the same technique applies here. You get the nose down, keep your airspeed up, and turn pretty aggressively. But remembering to keep your airspeed up through the turn. Don't let the nose come up or you'll stall and spin and go in. And that's the whole reason why this land straight ahead thing uh, took life and lived a lot longer than it should. Uh, guys would try to turn back. They would lose airspeed in the turn. And, you know, it's much better to lose altitude in a turn than airspeed in a turn. I mean, if you have to roll out at the last second just to get it level when you hit the ground, uh, at least you're hitting the ground level and moving forward as opposed to the down, the nose-down angle that you'll get if you start to uh, develop a spin on, at that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, uh, this is, uh, let's see, when is this? Wednesday, May 15th. Uh, we'll put the link in the, uh, in the show notes. Uh, the link that's on the show notes now takes you to the page where you can register for this. But highly recommended because, to me, following any rote, we always do it this way because. 
mm-hmm. doesn't allow for all the variables that exist when we're flying. And as everybody here knows, there's lots of variables. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, right. I've mentioned this before. Um, one of the most, I don't know, notable, uh, memorable training moments um, I've ever had in an airplane uh, was uh, when uh, I, we were we were doing a pattern practice. We were going round and round, and on one particular, t- and this is a very un- very long runway, so it was it was reasonably safe to do this. Um, um, on on takeoff, uh, we were climbing out. We were maybe a hundred, two hundred feet, something like that. All right, um, and still plenty of runway in front of us. And the instructor chopped the power on the airplane on me. I mean, just pulled it back to idle. And I'm going, oh, okay, this is interesting. And so immediately get the you know try and find the right attitude and uh, and had the airplane at, at the proper speed um, for the situation. And then looked out the window. I mean, kind of like kind of assessed the situation and felt like. We're, we're going down. We're descending fast, all right? The vertical speed is way more than what I, I would have expected. And my instinct was to pull back on the yoke, um, was to try and arrest that high, high rate of descent. Um, and the instructor was ready for me to do that, all right? I think that was the whole educational moment that he was going for because he was guarding his yoke and he wouldn't let me pull this, the yoke back. He says, no, don't do that. You'll stall, all right? Um, and I, this is relevant to the impossible turn in that it, it was just, it was really, really educational to me how much I wanted to pull back on the yoke to not be descending. Because when you're that close to the ground, you, you know, when you're doing engine outs at 3,000 feet, you don't have a sense of how fast you're sinking. But when you're at 100 feet or 150 feet, and you can really see in your peripheral vision how fast you're coming down, all right? And I had this urge to pull back to to slow down the descent, and the instructor said, "No, don't do that." And I and I think I said to him, I said, I said, "Well, we're going to hit pretty firmly." He says, "Yeah, it's fine. It'll take it, all right." And God bless this little 152 with this little spring steel main gear, um, because yeah, we planted it. Um, we hit pretty firmly, but nothing broke. And uh, um, so the possible the the impossible slash impossible turn. The the, the da- one part of the danger is that is that in the process of making this turn. It's going to be so tempting to try and arrest the descent, which just then aggravates the whole problem. Is my 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 take on this? My contribution to this whole conversation. Yeah. Um, um, <clears throat> there's there's a couple of things going on here. Um, the the second sentence in this uh, is the is the takeaway. Instructors should also train pilots of single engine airplanes not to make an emergency 100-degree turn back to the field after a failure unless altitude, best glide requirements, and pilot skill allow for a safe return. Um, we, aviation Safety years ago did, a, um, did an article um, based on, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I forget the, the author's name, um, fairly well-known uh, flight instructor and uh, someone who's done a lot of spins and um, um, edge of the envelope, corner of the envelope flying in, in, um, in GA airplanes. And um, he did a lot of turnbacks. And in fact, there was also a, um, a test done with um, a group of pilots of varying uh, experience levels. 
and the tests um, were basically um, can can this air, this airplane this pilot and the, in these conditions successfully turn back? I don't remember all of the details, but the answer was not likely. Is the quick answer. Um, the longer answer is that um, you have to practice this. Yeah, you have to you have to fly this maneuver uh, several times to understand the dynamics going on, to understand uh, how it will not be successful all the time, mm-hmm. and how you will have to come up with another uh, call it Plan C. Uh, um, to, to deal with this particular um, uh, problem. Um, the key in all of this is contacting the ground under control. Right. Um, whether you do it on a runway, um, on a beach, um, whatever, wherever. Um, and it's hard to do that when you're hanging on the edge of a stall, uh, trying to stretch a glide, um, etc. Um, those of our listeners who um, may go out and try this in their airplane, which you know perhaps they they already have, um, a take an instructor with you. B um, vary the experience a little bit. Um, Flying singles and twins, in twins, um, to guard against an engine failure, um, you want speed. You want airspeed. Mm-hmm. Airspeed is life in a twin because of the, the uh, loss of control possibility when you get too slow. Mm-hmm. In a single, you want altitude because if an engine quits in a single, you don't have any more engines. Mm-hmm. And the only energy you have is is kinetic energy, hmm. um, or I should say, uh, um, potential energy, uh, based on your altitude and your and your airspeed. And you want to obviously fly the airplane at its best glide speed um, until you can't fly it anymore, uh, uh, until there's no more uh, energy uh, left for mm-hmm. you to fly the airplane. So um, how you you know, you can set up different uh, different variables here. Um, where you are on the runway when the engine fails, where you are in relation to the runway, I say, I should say, mm-hmm. when, when the engine fails. What your altitude is when the engine fails. What your speed is when the engine fails. Um, a lot of people, you know, it, a lot of it depends on the airplane, but a lot of people have found that to get um, the altitude necessary, to have the potential energy to glide back to the runway, you have to be at an altitude where you have a whole plethora of other options to begin with. Mm-hmm. It's tempting. It's very tempting. So, oh, crap. Um, engine quit. I'm going back to the runway where, you know, the, the warm embrace of the bosom of the airport. Uh, that's, right. where, that's where I want to be. Yeah, that's uh, right. You know, you, you can't always get there from here. Um, and again... Once you do have the altitude to make a 45, 60 degree banked turn in a 180, 180 degree direction, it's, it's, that's not as simple as it sounds. A. B. It's not a 180 degree turn. It's more like a 270 degree turn. 
uh, you have to reverse course and then you have to align with the runway. And the act of reversing course takes you laterally away from the runway. Right. And you have to correct for that. Now, if you're at a at an airport that has uh, two runways that cross, perhaps they're aligned perfectly with your, your dilemma. Um, and that's something to think about and practice also. Right. Um, I'll shut up, but my punchline is don't try this at home, either for practice or in in the real event, unless you think about this a little bit and, in fact, uh, do practice it um, until you know your own limitations. You know the limitations of the runways you'll use. You know the limitations of your airplane. Uh, it may be that your airplane doesn't fly very well. Um, doesn't want to turn, doesn't want to descend, or I'm sorry, doesn't want to stay at altitude um, when you when you uh, conduct this maneuver. Uh, that's important to know when you still have an engine running uh, and, and not discover that when the engine quits. Yeah. So, yeah. Our pal um, Steve Tupper of the uh, legendary Airspeed podcast um, did this is some time this is some years ago now um, but did a series of videos so he is among other things a uh, a motor glider cfi um, and uh, he did a bunch of videos uh, uh, showing them actually executing the this turn back and return to your takeoff runway um, in, in a motor glider in a motor glider in a motor glider. in a motor glider well but <clears throat> so it's so the, the 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 you know the metrics are different but it's still a challenging return. Yeah. Um, and, and he obviously did a lot of practice and training and, and calculation and, and whatnot before and did this at much higher than necessary altitudes and so forth. Um, but uh, it's, it's really interesting to see it done successfully because it requires some dramatic turns that are well executed that are, I mean, you just got to like right. do a whole lot of things just exactly right yeah. um, in order to, turn back um at anything like a low altitude and and, um, and job one regardless of whether you turn back uh or turn 30 degrees and hit the cornfield just off the end of the runway or or whatever um you've got to get that nose down in a sing, yeah. in a single when you lose power on takeoff you might have five eight degrees nose up pitch um the only way you can maintain that is with power if you lose power get the nose down yeah yep, yep. yep. and yep. i like immediately is... go, ahead. Yep. go ahead go this... ahead david how'd we do well you did good this is just to illustrate the faa's change of heart on this uh in this event registration uh page there's a paragraph that reads the FAA now states matter-of-factly in Advisory Circular 61-83 Juliet that, quote, flight instructors should demonstrate and teach trainees when and how to make a safe 180-degree turn back to the field after an engine failure. That, that's 180 degrees out of phase with what they've been saying for years. But I think it's smart advice. Yeah. And okay. Jeb's right on the money. Yeah. You don't want the first time you're doing this to be the first time you're doing this in the real. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Get out with your CFI, get his briefing on it, and start with a little altitude and then start working your way down to see 
how differently the airplane be, behaves as uh, you get, uh, how differently the pilot behaves as you get closer to the ground with the engine fails. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, we are kind of reaching the end of our allotted time here. Um, but there's one thing I wanted to ask you. I wanted you guys to teach me something about airplane ownership. And this is, oh, ha- having said that, I'm going to get people excited about Jack buying you, an airplane. You, and pick, that's not you what, picked the wrong week to talk about airplanes. <laughs> about, uh, this is not about Jack buying an airplane. Don't anybody get excited. All right? this is literally, I was talking to a listener um, who is sort of shopping for uh, an, another. Uh, he has an airplane and he wants to upgrade to a newer airplane. So he's shopping for an airplane. Um, and he tells me how he came across a really interesting airplane in terms of make and model and, and it's, you know, uh, it, it, what its performance would do for him and, and so forth. Um, but he observed this particular airplane that he came across had, has no logbooks. The, the, uh, the maintenance logbooks have been lost for this particular airplane. And, and I, and I'm going, well, wow, how do you do it? Because the logbooks are important. They literally are the history of of the condition of the airplane. Um, and I'm curious for me, how does this work, you guys who own or have owned airplanes? If if you wanted to buy an airplane and it didn't have its logbooks, what do you do? I would pay a lot less, for one. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm straight. Uh, I, I, I can't speak for Jeb, but I know what I'd do. I'd call up the leprechaun. Yeah. And tell him what I'm looking at. The leprechaun being your trusted mechanic. Yep. Yep. Uh, out at Dead Cow. And uh, because this happens, it's yeah. been done. Uh, but it is a little bit like brain surgery. For one thing, you can get records from the FAA uh, in Oklahoma City mm-hmm. that will show major changes, uh, airworthiness directives applied, whether the aircraft was damaged. It's sales history, or ownership history, I should say. And you may be able to go back to a prior owner and find out that maybe they've got the logs. Okay. Uh, then along the way, I'm going to put the airplane in front of uh, uh, the leprechaun uh, once he's got those records from Oak City and let him go through the whole airplane uh, like a really detailed annual inspection, uh, more right. than just a pre-purchase, and make sure that what he finds – matches up with whatever records that you get from uh, Oak City. And then I'm going to negotiate a hell of a deal. If, everything, <laughs> if everything's copacetic, yeah. if everything's copacetic, uh, like title search, uh, that's that's not a logbook issue. That's a paperwork issue down in Oklahoma City. If a mechanic's filed a lien against an owner that affects that air that applies to that airplane because the owner didn't pay for his annual inspection that can come up getting a clean title. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no log books seldom comes up getting a clean title. Uh, you got to have the airworthiness certificate. You got to have the registration. If those are missing, that's a whole nother ball of wax right. and I'd walk. Right. Okay. Right. But now, so, so, let's, so let's, yeah, um, go ahead, Jeb. What your mechanic needs to do, what the leprechaun in this case is going to want to do, um, he's going to want to start um, whenever the the airworthiness certificate says, as, as far as when the airplane went into service, and he's going to want to um, look at each and every airworthiness directive that could potentially affect that airplane, and he needs to satisfy himself in whatever fashion he does that 
um, the airplane complies with the airworthiness directive, or put it another way, that the airworthiness directive has been complied with. Uh, sometimes that can be um, an interesting question. For example, on my airplane, um, it was originally built with um, uh, magnesium uh, elevator horns. Um, I saw this story this, recently. This is, yeah, go yeah, ahead. This yeah. Is, uh, the elevator horns are a cast uh, product, cast part, as I recall, that um, is used <clears throat> to fit the uh, uh, elevator control system to the elevator itself. And um, Beach originally, and they made a lot of parts out of magnesium back in the day, but uh, um, these particular parts were... Um, subject to an AD for, for reasons I forget at this point. Um, to perform the AD, you had to inspect these elevator horns uh, once a year at, or once every 100 hours, or I, I don't remember what the variable uh, time variable was. Well, the fix, you know, and, and you can do that and, and find that the, the horns had no cracks or, or whatever the, the malady was, or you could simply replace those elevator horns with aluminum components designed to do the same thing and that was a no-brainer uh for me especially when i was having the the airplane painted so well, that terminated the ad it terminated the ad okay so you know now if i lost my log books and took the airplane or someone else took the airplane to a mechanic um coming up against that ad he would have to research uh, um, without that logbook entry of, of the, the magnesium parts having been replaced, um, he would have to f- access those elevator horns and then test them to figure out if they are constructed of magnesium or aluminum. And you can do that with uh, various uh, n- not expensive uh, 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 test equipment. Um, uh, a magnodyne, if magnodyne turns at one color or if allodyne turns at another color, that will tell you that it's magnesium or aluminum, for example. There you go. For example. Uh, but he still has to do that. That's labor. That's, you know, uh, um, maybe some disassembly, yada, yada, yada. Um, and that's just one AD uh, of of uh, uh, several over the years that have applied mm-hmm. to my airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what the leprechaun would have to do. Um, for all ADs applicable to the airframe, all ADs applicable to the engine, and perhaps ADs applicable to the prop and or other equipment that's in the airplane. Yeah. See, my, my initial, my first impression when my friend said, uh, when this listener said uh, no logbooks was, oh my gosh, this is a big deal. And I guess it is a big deal. Well, it, it's a big deal in the sense that you know, it needs to be resolved before the airplane is "quote airworthy" unquote. It's not a big deal in the stand from the standpoint of, you know, um, will the airplane ever be made airworthy? Uh, chances are those ads have to have have been accomplished, uh, or you know, terminating uh, uh, actions have been uh, accomplished on on many of these ads if there is in fact a terminating action. Um, but that has to be demonstrated to the satisfaction of the inspector, uh, the IA. And once it's determined, then it's logged in the log books. And that's the last time you have to do that, unless, of course, it's a recurring AD without, no term, without a terminating action. Right, right. 
So one last question about this now. So I sort of get the picture that it's a quite a, there's an elaborate process involved in establishing the air the actual airworthiness of the airplane. Um, you know, figuring out its condition and all these things that you've just talked about. Um, having logbooks isn't having the logbooks a, a legal requirement of airworthiness as well. Um, and if so, how does it work with the FAA? Do they like generate some paperwork saying you know you're good to go? Um, you have you know? to you have to have evidence uh-huh. that a required inspections and um, airworthiness directives that apply to the aircraft have been uh, performed. Right. And then they give you some paper that says the absence of logbooks prior to this date are okay? No. No, it doesn't work that way. Okay. The, the IA, whoever's doing the annual inspection, now it has to have, presuming we're talking about a Part 91 operation, I don't want to get into 135 because that's a right, whole right. other kettle yeah. of fish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a whole, whole other problem. Okay. That's yeah. a different nightmare. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, but presuming Part 91 alone, um, once the IA has, again, um, inspected the airplane and checked the AD compliance and and uh, uh, perform the annual inspection itself and uh, determines that the aircraft, A, con- conforms with its type design and, B, um, all airworthiness directives have been complied with, he or she can sign off on the annual, and that's all the airplane needs to become airworthy again. Oh, okay. But the challenge, the task of getting to that point oh, yeah. is what is going to um, uh, reduce the cost of the airplane when you buy it without logbooks. Yeah. And you will also find going down the road that there may be other airworthiness directives that come out that apply um, that may be keyed to previous airworthiness directives or keyed to service bulletins or service letters or instructions that the airframe manufacturer or the engine manufacturer uh, put published, and you have no way to determine if those, in fact, have been complied with uh, before your ownership. Right. So there you go all over again. Yeah. Okay. Now let's, right. let's, let's dive into this from a different angle, and I'll make this as quick as possible. Okay. You're looking at an airplane. Uh, you like it. It's what you want. Uh, it's going to serve your purpose, and it has logbooks. And we all know the, uh, the drill. You want to get a mechanic that's familiar with that type and have a detailed pre-purchase inspection. One of the things that goes into the pre-purchase inspection should be your IA or your A&P pulling all the airworthiness directives for that airplane, not just trusting what the logs say, and then checking against the logs that those ADs have actually been complied with. And then when inspecting the airplane, Doing spot checks on some of those uh, airworthiness directive jobs and make sure that, yeah, they were actually done or, yeah, they're still good. Some idiot didn't undo it, like put in the wrong bolts that now undoes it and now you got a, a, a regular inspection necessary for certain bolts. So this isn't just for when you don't have logs. This process should go forward not at the same detail level, but when you're buying a airplane with logbooks, you want that pre-purchase inspection to look at all the airworthiness directives and service bulletins and confirmation that they were all accomplished. Yeah, right. Um, 
I'll, I'll differ on one level. Service bulletins are, are for Part 91 operations are non-mandatory. Even if it says mandatory uh, service bulletin, it's, right on. it's still not mandatory for Part 91 operations. Um, service bulletins um, are optional. For example, um, years after it made my airplane, Beach started putting in a uh, starter energized light, an idiot light, on the instrument panel of later model Bonanzas. Uh, and what that did was alert the pilot um, that the the um, Bendix drive essentially on the uh, on the starter motor had not disengaged, and their starter was still in the uh, starter was still turning. Mm-hmm. Um, let, me, let me rephrase that. That um, the although the engine may be running, the starter motor is still receiving power. It's still using power. And you might want to shut down the engine and fix the problem. Yeah. Okay. So got I've it. got that light. And that light is installed under a service bulletin. That's the documentation. That's the FAA-approved data for that light. The airplane did not come with it, so there's got to be some traceability. There's got to be some um, demonstration that whatever modification is made um, – that it has some validity and that it's been tested, it's been approved. The service bulletin is that evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not an AD. That's not um, really uh, all that interesting to the guy doing the annual either. Um, but the approved data for that comes from that service bulletin. There are other service bulletins that you may or may not want to apply to your airplane. Right. Okay. Very complicated, um, but I, I'm getting a clearer picture. Thank you. And uh, our listener, and I'm assuming you're listening, you might be, um, let me know if this answered any of your questions and if you have any more questions as a result. That's kind of an, I don't know. Well, and something that we might want to follow up on at another podcast, not today, yeah. along the same lines. You're a licensed pilot. The FAA's got uh, the records. You've passed your check ride and any add-on ratings and all that. But you can't find your logbooks. Yeah. Okay. That's another story. That's another uh, story. Yeah, I lost my uh, misplaced my wallet uh, a few days ago, mm-hmm. and all of my uh, pilot certificates, all of my uh, all my medical certificate, um, a bunch of my social security card, you know, all this kind of stuff is in my wallet. Yikes. Yeah. Um, so I was going a little frantic there for an hour or so until I finally figured out where it was and, and uh, everything everything's cool. Um, logbooks are uh, pilot logbooks are similar to aircraft logbooks. All they have to do is demonstrate that you've met uh, the uh, um, recent experience requirements. Um, for the operation and that can be um hey here's my private pilot certificate okay and here's a logbook entry that says i've done three or here's a logbook entry that says a i have a f- current flight review and b i have uh three landings and takeoffs in a tricycle gear airplane in the daytime within the last uh, 90 days that's all you really need you don't have to have that logbook 
going back, you know, uh, uh, in my case, uh, almost four decades. All you have to have is the flight review entry and the 90-day uh, currency. Now, mm-hmm. it gets a lot weirder from there, but um, when it comes to pilot logbooks, um, the burden of proof is similar. The requirements uh, uh, to conduct a legal operation are different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe we will come back to that at some point. That is kind of an interesting question. Okay. All right. Uh, in a couple seconds, I'm going to say shout-outs. But first, um, I want to talk a little bit about Oshkosh. Um, so um, it's, it's still a little ways out, um, although it's, it's coming in, coming at us fast. Um, and uh, as we have for 12, whatever, 13 years now, um, Uncontrolled Airspace will be at Oshkosh 2019. Um, we'll be doing um, all of the things we've always done. Uh, we will do an episode on Sunday morning uh, from the uh, from the uh, flight line. We'll be doing our daily episodes. Uh, the tie-down party will be on Thursday night, as usual. Um, and so, uh, you know, kind of expect those things that, that, that you've been expecting. But uh, something new that we haven't done before, or at least not done in this particular way, that we're going to do this year and that is um we're and we're gonna have a more formal announcement in uh, a, a couple weeks or so but uh for you listeners let me say that we're going to do something that we're calling ucap live um ucap live is uh we're going to do two live audience episodes of the podcast uh recorded from the grounds of uh, air venture 2019 uh specifically from uh there's a little pavilion that's associated with the home builders headquarters and we're going to be the guests of the home builders folks and and uh our pal uh, charlie becker um who is the head of that division um and uh, we're going to do two two of these episodes um they're going to be on tuesday morning and friday morning during um air venture week uh and we'll, we'll announce the particular times but if you're at all interested in uh, attending a live recording of this podcast uh you might want to uh, uh make a mark on your calendar to save tuesday morning and friday morning to uh, meet up with us and talk with your therapist first please <laughs> no it's going to be fun we're going to have a good time uh we're hoping to have some very special guests uh of course we'll all have our, our usual nonsense um and uh, y'all will get a chance to see jeb um at uh, a well before noon which that might be worth the price of admission right there uh, and uh, I'm told. <laughs> where, where did you say you were sleeping this year in Oshkosh? Charlie, <laughs> Charlie told me to tell you, Jeb, that uh, there is coffee. All right. So, all right. Uh, all right. All right. Uh, well, but, uh, I, I trust Charlie in this a little bit more than I trust either of you. So but, just, just say it. Okay. Uh, UCAP Live. <laughs> UCAP Live on Tuesday and Friday morning uh, from the Home Builders headquarters uh, at AirVenture Oshkosh 2019. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're hoping to make it very interactive, talk to the audience members, talk to some special guests, uh, soak up the uh, the atmosphere of the uh, new improved Home Builders area. They're making a lot of changes to that area. It's going to be a very exciting place. It always is, but uh, it's going to be uh, uh, really, really quite a, a, a big deal uh, this year. So, Tuesday and Friday, UCAP Live. Uh, Thursday afternoon, tie-down party. Sunday morning, uh, live from the flight line. Um, UCAP daily episodes interspersed in amongst all these things. Um, It's going to be fun. It's going to be quite an Oshkosh, I think. What else here? Uh, Let's see now. Um, I'll talk about that one later on. How about about, uh, uh, shout-outs? They're not on the list. Shout-outs. Anything like I said, I had no idea what we were going to talk about here. So there was nothing at the beginning and nothing at the end. Are there any shout-outs? Anything you want to uh, call attention to, say hello to, uh, uh, or and whatnot? Um, I guess not, huh? I, <laughs> it's okay. I just real quickly, I, I 
kind of put this on there. This is almost uh, uh, Dave's beat and not mine. Um, but I, I was the one who did put this on the list. Um, Doc, the um, uh, the second flying B-29, uh, yep. has its, finally has a forever home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is courtesy the the Twin and Turban magazine. Um, the uh, um, Doc's Friends, the nonprofit organization supporting the aircraft, um, recently rolled Doc into its brand new thirty two thousand square foot facility uh, at uh, Wichita's. Uh, um, used to be Mid Continent. Now it's what Dwight D Eisenhower yeah, National I, I, Airport. I, 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 you know. <laughs> Um, okay, fine. Um, don't even ask me about national. Um, but, uh, I just, I just wanted to point out that doc now has a forever home and, and congratulate, congratulate the friends of doc organization and anybody else who contributed or was a part of that. Good job, folks. Now, is this more than just a place to get the airplane in out of the rain? Um, is there like a display? Is there, are there exhibits? Can you go and visit? Uh, that, that I don't know. Um, yes, yeah, yes, on both points. Okay, make, would uh-huh. make sense. Yeah, and is, and is the exhibit part of it also complete? I mean, is, is it if one were in Wichita, could they go there now? I mean, assuming it's the right day of the week, I, I believe so. Uh, and they'll be adding to it uh, to the exhibits, uh, and the exhibits are all about the history of the B twenty nine and Doc in particular. Uh, and if I'm remembering this right, I haven't been out there for a while. There's a glass wall so you can see the airplane from the street. Oh, cool. And it's all lit up at oh, night. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking it's too bad we don't have uh, a, uh, a way of looking these things up. Yeah, it's too bad we don't know anybody who lives nearby that could t- go so and take I'm a picture. At- you know. I'm looking at the Doc's Friends. Well, yeah, okay, that too, right? Yeah, uh, uh, Doc's Friends uh, website, uh, which happens to be b29doc.com, uh, b29erdoc.com, um, and uh, let's see. Now they're announcing. Uh, so of course, Doc doesn't isn't there permanently. Doc is actually going to be wandering around America, um, uh, so that people can see it a little more locally. But uh, I'm trying to see if there's any information here about the actual local. Uh, exhibits here visiting uh it's not uh, it provides unique they have a yeah they have a calendar that shows when doc will be yeah. in the hangar that's very yeah. cool oh, oh yeah look at that yeah. the calendar shows docs the, uh, in hangar today yeah tuesday through tuesday and thursday 9 a.m to 2 p.m and saturday 9 a.m to 1 p.m when doc is not on tour mm-hmm. um so yeah if you go to that uh, b29 doc dot com website there's information if you're going to be in wichita and you want to go in and check it and, out and, and this is this is entirely reasonable uh admission is ten dollars a person or twenty dollars per family yeah um plus individuals plus an, uh, an additional five dollars for cockpit access really just to all Fif- this is another fifteen $5? bucks to get access to the cockpit on of dock so i'm up for that anytime yeah really um, really Okay, very cool. And very among cool. among the uh, events on Doc's schedule this summer is uh, a, a, a strange sounding place, Appleton Oshkosh. Yeah, I huh. know. Huh. Twenty four and twenty five. They'll only be up there July twenty four and twenty five. That sounds very picturesque. You know, Appleton's. Appleton. They're, they're going to be in at the uh, t- 
Tulsa Air and Space Museum and Planetarium in Tulsa, Oklahoma, May 25 and 26. Uh, next, wait, next weekend or this weekend? Oh, this coming weekend. Wait. No, next weekend, May 18th and 19th. It's going to be B-29 Flight Experience Weekend here in Wichita. Uh, it's going to be at Tinker Air Force Base uh, June 1 and 2. Uh, lots of stuff. It's not going to be an idle airplane. No, no. So, cool. all right. Very cool. Very cool. What else? David, you got a shout out? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> After all of that, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I wouldn't have anything else at this, at this point either. So. Uh, okay, well, that's it then. Uh, fork time. Time to stick a fork in it. Uh, Jeb Burnside. Thanks, Jeb. We appreciate it. Jeb's a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Uh, you alluded earlier to the fact that yeah. you've been working on a lot of different things. Yeah. Anything you want to tell um, us about? Um, the June issue of Aviation Safety is in the can. Um couple of really good articles, one of which I happen to have written. Mm. Um, yeah, because that's the only thing in the issue that you write. Exactly right. Uh, um, so that's done. Um, regular listeners will know that uh, uh, I was out at the uh, Aircraft Electronic Association uh, annual meeting in uh, Palm Springs. Palm, Palm Thank Springs, you. Yep. Um, uh, a few weeks ago. And I finally cleaned up the mess that that presented. Um I, I'm going to guess about ten or 11,000 words uh, yeah. flowed out of all of that, it's three different articles. So I filed the last one yesterday and, uh, uh, again, kind of stumbling around, what do I do next? So mm-hmm. there's all yeah. of that. So anyway, um, so yeah, uh, those projects are concluded, um, uh, gearing up for uh, uh, the next few projects and whatnot, yeah. but uh, – just looking forward to uh, uh, being able to inspect my navel without, uh, uh, <laughs> okay, without too much con- information. Yeah, without confusion. So, yeah. <laughs> where can people find out about uh, your writing project, your 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 professional projects? Okay, on those, the those projects. Yeah, uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com for the magazine. Uh, AEA.net for the Aircraft Electronics Association. You will also find my stuff, uh, Grumble Grumble, on AvWeb. Uh, you will also find my stuff on uh, generalaviationnews.com as well as on AINonline.com. Mm-hmm. And on Twitter, you are? Burnside J. And, and the magazine also has a Twitter handle nowadays. Which is? AvSafetyMag. There you go. And Dave Higdon. Dave's an aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's Ab Buyer magazine. David, what have you been working on? Well, uh, I just looked that up. Uh, (laughs) What month is it? Oh, never mind. Who's on first? Third base. No, wait, I don't know. No, I mean, in Dave's defense, all right, the things that are available now to be read, um, he finished like two months ago. And so, well, yeah. some, for, for avionics news, that's true. For app buyer, it was just two weeks ago. Yeah, okay. uh, but this month, uh, the uh, folks at uh, avionics news at AEA were nice enough to put one of my stories on the cover. Head, head up flying and about the advances in heads up displays that are uh, available to GA pilots now. And if that doesn't interest you, uh, another story. Second Chance Options looks at redundant systems and how they can improve survival odds when things go haywire. And I'm Real Higdon on the Twitter machine. You can find me at uh, 
avbuyer.com, my uh, work over there. Uh, no longer doing blogging for them. Now I'm doing two, uh, what do they call them, buyer guides pieces about different business jets every week. And uh, that's kept things busy. And doing some work for uh, two associations for Cessna and Owner Pilots and their magazines. I'm sorry, Cessna and Piper Pilots and their magazines in that magazine so uh it's, it's not dull okay <laughs> yeah, right. not dull that's good not dull not dull all right and i'm jack hodgson i am a uh, private pilot a freelance writer and a digital media producer um i've been doing a lot of work on the ucap website recently um for, for those of you listeners who uh, and there are a handful of you who like to go listen to the old stuff um, for some time now, so if you go to our homepage and you scroll to the bottom of the homepage, there's a link to what pretended to be a, a massive list of every episode we've ever done. But for quite some time, that list was kind of broken and it never went back further than the first 150 episodes or so. Um, and I've since fixed that. So now if you really, really want to go diving back into the, uh, the, the uh, dark ages, um, that list now shows the title and a link to uh, the show notes for every episode we've ever, ever done. Um, what I'm working on now is uh, some of those early show notes are, are in odd condition and, and they're, they're, you know, complete to a larger or lesser extent. And so we're gradually working on trying to get the show notes all cleaned up um, and, and kind of made all to look nice, which is no mean, t- no mean feat. I, you know, when you stop and think about this, that, you know, there's 400, what are we at now? 470, episode 476. Um, and if you just say that half of them, 200 of them need fixing. Uh, and if you say I could fix one a day, that would be a year, right? <laughs> Um, so it's a, it's a, it's no mean feat to try and clean up these show notes, but I really want to, because, uh, I hear from listeners from time to time who enjoy going back to the old stuff and finding stories that we've done in the past. So, uh, working on that. Um, you can find me online in uh, most places with the username Jack Hodgson. That's my first and last name just bumped together. For example, uh, youtube.com slash Jack Hodgson, Twitter slash Jack Hodgson, Patreon slash Jack Hodgson. Don't make me do this. Yeah. Don't go ahead. All right. You asked for it. Go ahead. On on Amazon, uh, you can uh, search for my ebooks by searching for "Around the Field" in the books section, and you can sign up for my e- e- my occasional email newsletter uh, by going to my personal website, jackhodgson.com. Um, I'm about to ask David, but D- Jeb, do you have anything you want to say? Um, you left one out. I'm sure I did. What did I leave out? The Pornhub.com slash Jack Hodgson. Uh, okay. Hey, David, was there something you wanted to tell us? Yeah, if you want to get as old as Jeb, you got to spend some time in a cockpit because, well, you know, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. My responses to all of these comments has been redacted. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right.